Amen. Amen. Grab your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter number 9. Beginning with verse number 24. Daniel chapter number 9. Chapter number nine, verse number 20 is where we will begin. Beginning with verse number 20. We'll read through the end of the chapter. As is our custom, let us stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. Daniel chapter number 9, beginning with verse number 20, says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, Oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of weeks ago, we studied the first part of Daniel 
chapter number 9. And in that first part of Daniel number 9, Daniel went before the throne of God on behalf of his people. He interceded for them and he cried out to God and he confessed sin. He prayed to God because he had previously read the book of Jeremiah, which said that their exile would be for 70 years. And so based on that, he read that in exile will be 70 years. And in that prophecy, it said, and you will cry out to me. You will seek my face. And so Daniel goes to God on their behalf. He confesses their sin, their rebellion, and their transgression against their most holy God. And then towards the end of that, he says, Lord, forgive us. Hear us and do not delay. And what's amazing is, as he's praying, God sends a word from heaven through one of his angels. Here is what we study this morning, God's answer to Daniel's prayer. Now, this is a unique answer. And so this morning, I want to do two things. I want to give you an explanation of the text, and then I'm going to give us some application at the end. Now, let's set some things in order. Number one, this is one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. This is a hard passage to understand. So, I pray that you will extend me grace, as will I to you, if we end up disagreeing on some of this, these matters. The good thing about preaching through books of the Bible and being faithful to it is I can't run from passages like this. I have to do the hard work of trying to understand passages such as these. Now, the next thing I want to tell you is you may have a different view of this passage than the one that I'm going to share with you this morning, and that's okay. I'm okay with it. We ought to not let passages like these that are hard to understand divide us. All right, all right, let's go then. We'll, read, we'll come back to the first three or four verses. Let me give you the explanation. First of all, this passage begins by saying in verse number 24 that, that there will be 70 weeks. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Before we can really understand this passage, we have to understand what's meant by 70 weeks. All right, some of this, just so you know, this first point, I'm just telling you the meaning. We'll get to the significance at the end, so you got to hang with me. Seventy weeks. The Hebrew literally reads 70 sevens. Seventy sevens. So there is decreed 70 periods of times of 
sevens. What are these sevens? The ESV translated as weeks. But even though they translated as weeks, most of these translators would come to understand that weeks literally means seven years. So there are 70 periods of seven years. And we can, we can infer this meaning that weeks actually means seven years from the context. Before Daniel begins his prayer, as I said earlier in the introduction, we learn that Daniel had been reading the book of Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, it was prophesied that Israel would be in exile for 70 years. So, we are talking then about a period of time of a total of 490 years. 70 times 7. And so the text begins by saying in this 490-year period, God would accomplish six things. Number one, he would finish the transgression. He would put an end to sin and atone for iniquity. Most scholars say that those three should be bunched together because those things can only happen through the death of Jesus Christ. But the last three likely have to do with end times because look, the fourth thing that's going to happen is there will, God is going to bring an everlasting righteousness. The fact that this said that the, 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 the word here is everlasting must mean that this has to do with the end. Then there's going to, then the fifth thing, seal both vision and prophet. And then six, anoint a most holy place. We'll come back to that. So let's talk about these 77s, 77s or 490 years. The text does us a favor, and it breaks down these 490 years into three different segments. The first segment of this 490-year period is seven sevens, which would be 49 years. Seven sevens, which is 49 years. Here's what we learned. During this first period of time, a word or a message would Go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. When did this happen? I am convinced that this decree that's referred here, that's referred to here, happened in 445 BC when Nehemiah was given permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Let me show it to you. Nehemiah chapter 2. You can flip there, turn there, swipe there. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse number 1. Here's what it says. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine, that's Nehemiah, and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. 
Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, and I, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So, in 445 B.C., this process, this rebuilding process begins. And that pro, pro, yeah, sorry, that would have been completed in 396 B.C., which is 49 years later. So that's the first segment of time, the first 49 years of this 483. 490-year period. So let's look at the second segment of time. The text, beginning with verse number 25. Let's read it together. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, 445 B.C., to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So we have this first period of time of seven weeks, which is 49 years, and now we are given another period of time, 62 sevens, which is 434 years. So between this seven sevens and this 62 sevens, we have 69 weeks, 483 years. Now, we got to start reading closely here. Because this ESV translation, and you know I love my ESV, it's actually pretty confusing here. It reads like the time be between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of this anointed one, this prince, is seven weeks. But that's actually not the best translation of the Hebrew. The New English trans translation does a better job here of translating the Hebrew. Now, look, go back to verse number 25, and let's read the ESV. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. All right? So, let's, now this is here how the New English translation reads. From the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince arrives, there will be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. So the total period of time between the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem to the coming of this anointed one is a total of 69 weeks. 
So, we've got 483 years. So if the decree was issued in 445 B.C. to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem, then to the coming of the anointed one, this has to be ending around A.D. 32 or 33. Now, let me forewarn you that if you try to do your own calculations, you're going to be frustrated. There are several reasons. All right, this is not like pastor math where you're just like, trust me. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Thank you. <laughs> what you have to understand is the Jewish calendar was three, a, a, a full year was 360 days, not 365. So you can do the math. You do this 490 times these five extra days, there's a lot of years in there. So that's one of the reasons you're going to come with the wrong conclusion. So we're here now in this 483-year period, 69 weeks. And so we've got some of our dates together. There's another interpretive question we have to answer, and that is what is the meaning of the anointed one? The word in Hebrew is Mashiach, Mashiach. It translates into our English word, Messiah. And so we know that the Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ. So we've got this 69 weeks time, the decree to go to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem for the coming of the Messiah. Now, you're doing your own calculations. You're going to be like, well, he was born then, but you said this period ends in AD 32 or 33. What's happening? Remember, he's declared to be the Messiah by his own people. When? During the triumphal entry. When they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David. That's a royal title. And so that's when he is declared to be Messiah by his own people. That's how you get those dates to work. And so then we move on to verse 26. We learn more about this anointed one. And after 62 weeks, anointed, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The word for cut off here means to disappear, to be exterminated, to be wiped out or eliminated. This clearly refers to the killing of the Messiah, his crucifixion on the cross. The second part of verse 26 tells us even more. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Again, we have to go back and read closely to understand. First, the prince of verse 26 is not the same as the prince of verse 25. Let me say that again. The prince of verse 26 is not the same as the prince of verse 25. The prince of verse 25 is the Messiah. The prince of verse 26 is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary, different prince. 
This prince allows the people to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And they come into Jerusalem like a flood. Has this happened? I believe so. We know that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 under the Roman emperor Titus. The Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the city and the temple. The second point to understand about verse 26 is the timing. Look closely at the beginning of verse 26. If you're writing your Bible, you need to underline this. And after the 62 weeks, after the 62 weeks, that's crucial. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah is killed. So he's not killed during the 69th week. He's killed after the 69th week. 69th week. And so you're saying, oh, this is the 70th, 70th week. Let's look. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and suffering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree is poured out on the desolator. So if we read the text closely, we learn that the subsequent destruction of Jerusalem happens after the 69th week, but not during the 70th week. There is a gap then between the 69th week and the 70th week. For a period of time between the 69th week and the 70th week, God takes his focus off the people of Israel exclusively and grafts in the Gentiles. This gap is what is known as the time of the Gentiles. I didn't make it up. Jesus did. Watch this. Go to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse number 20. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse number 20. Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. Beginning with Luke 21, verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles How long? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We are now living in the time of the Gentiles. In this period, this gap, this space between the 69th week and the 70th week has lasted over 2,000 years. It's the age of the church. 
God is working out his kingdom program through the church. So we are now living in the gap. What happens between year 60 or week 69 and week 70, verse 26, going back to Daniel chapter 9, he says, after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So we know then we have this Messiah who is crucified. Second part of verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So we see we have this different prince. He destroys Jerusalem and the temple. We know this happened in A.D. 70. Here's the other thing that Gabriel tells Daniel. He says that this, your sufferings won't end there. The people will continue to suffer even after the city and the temple have been trampled. And this time of suffering will continue through the 70th week. So now we're in the third period of time. So we, we, we have talked about the gap between number 69 and 70. So now we're at week number 70. After the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then God will begin to deal with the Jews again in a very special manner. And this will begin the final week of seven years. This final seven years begins before Christ's second coming. There will be a future, future Gentile ruler from the Romans or from this Ten-nation European confederacy. Who is this ruler? I'm convinced that it's none other than the Antichrist. I think that's actually why Gabriel, Gabriel uses the term prince differently for both the Messiah and this ruler who is coming because this ruler who is coming is going to cause people or mandate people to bow down and worship him. He's going to make it seem like he is the Christ, the Savior, a prince. This antichrist will require the world to bow down to him. During this time, this, this Antichrist will make a covenant or a treaty with many. This period of time would include a time of terrible tribulation for both Israel and the rest of the world. This Antichrist will put an end to the worship of the one true God. That's what he means, what Gabriel means when he says he'll put an end to the morning and evening sacrifices. They won't be able to worship according to Holy Scripture. But the good news is that God will use these trials to bring many people to faith, even during this time of tribulation. There will be tribulation. There will be a time of great distress. And this will be quite demoralizing if this were the end of this passage. But there's one more sentence left in verse number 27. 
And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The desolator, the Antichrist, will be judged and punished. Revelation chapter 19 verse 20 tells us that he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And these final seven weeks will be terminated with the second coming of Christ when he established his earthly reign on the earth. That's the explanation of the text. There are other views on this passage, by the way, and if you're interested in knowing them, let me know and I'll send them to you. I'm convinced that this is the most faithfully exegetical interpretation of this passage. This passage is not here for us simply to figure out when all these things are going to happen. This passage is not here for us simply to argue about. This passage is here for a specific reason. Let's talk about the application. What in the world does any of this mean for us? First of all, I think we ought to know that God hears our prayers and God answers prayers. Remember, context, the text, beginning in verse 20, says that this answer came while Daniel was praying and speaking. God sent the angel Gabriel, to give him insight and understanding. Look at this, beloved. Before Daniel could even finish his prayer, God sent an answer to his prayer. Oh, children of God, what comfort it should bring to us to know that God hears our prayers immediately. Remember this book, Daniel wrote this, to people who were in exile. Think about it. If you were a, a, a Jew and you were in exile, you likely felt that God had forgotten about you. You likely felt that God no longer cared for you. But this passage would have brought them great comfort to know that God had not forgotten about them. So this passage reveals to the people of God that God cares about his people. Even in exile, even when you are not in your own land, God still cares about you. Even when you are under the discipline of God, he still loves you and cares for you. And so this passage ought to remind us that God is not indifferent to the cries of his people. God is not deaf to the prayers of his people. He hears and answers prayers. And beloved, I know, I know you're saying, Brandon, you had all week to come up with something good and you came here to just tell us that God hears and answers prayers. Baby, yes, I sure did. I know, I know this is a very elementary and basic point that God hears and answers prayers. Well, if it is, let me ask you a question, church. Do you pray like it? Do you pray like God hears and answers your prayers? Do you cast all your cares upon the one who cares for you? Even when you sin and rebel against the holy God, do you confess your sin and plead for forgiveness? 
Beloved, what are you worrying about and anxious about that you need to storm the gates of heaven on your knees? And Daniel teaches us that even in exile, when things are dark and the future looks bleak, you ought to call on the name of the Lord. He, he hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. But there's another, there's another application for us. I think this passage is tailored to teach us that God is sovereign over the past, the present, and the future. That's what, remember, I told you from the very beginning, and I've tried to point this out to you, that that's the theme of this book of Daniel, that God is sovereign. That's the main point of all of Daniel, and Daniel records all these things so for us to know that God is sovereign. And over the past, God was orchestrating all the events that happened. And even in the present, God is orchestrating all the events that are happening. And guess what? You don't even have to worry about your future. God's got it in his hands. He's sovereign. So live like it. Believe like it. And I know I prayed about this last week, but somebody here needs to know, somebody on this stream needs to know that even when November 3rd comes, election day, God is still sovereign. The Republicans need to know God is sovereign. The Democrats need to know God is sovereign. The Libertarians need to know God is sovereign. For those of us who, for those of us, for those who think that America will never be the same if so-and-so is, 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 is elected. God is sovereign. Lift up your head, O oh, ye gates. God is still on the throne. So I don't worry. I don't fear. Why? He's got the whole world <laughs> in his hands. And God's hands never go weak. <laughs> He's still controlling everything. This passage, number three, let me move on. This text tells us the great hope of this text is after the 69th week, an anointed one will come. Remember, what got Israel into their predicament of being in exile was their sin and their rebellion against their king, the most holy God, Yahweh. Their greatest problem was not exile. That was the consequence of their greatest problem. Their greatest problem was their sin. Their unfaithfulness to the covenant that they made with their holy God. That was their greatest problem. And because of the sin, the, the, their judgment came. And the judgment was, you got to get out of this promised land. I'm sending you into a land that is not your own. To be under the reign of a king that is not your own. This passage, what led them to exile is sin and the judgment of God. But God, what their greatest problem was, God provided a great solution. Jesus Christ. 
the answer to sin, the answer to the wrath of God, Jesus Christ. God has provided a Messiah, an anointed one, a Savior to rescue all people from the wrath of God. And so here's the application. Trust in him. Listen, God is so good. And God knows how jacked up we are. That he didn't leave anything to us to do to make us right with him. He put all of his, his, his wrath and all the work on his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So now we don't do anything to be right with God. We respond to God's free grace by faith, trust, all of our confidence in him. And because Jesus has come and because the text says he's been cut off or he's been killed, he's been murdered, he was buried. But the good news is that same Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. And because of him, we got a bright future. Child of God, I see your future. And it looks good. I see your future. And I see an everlasting righteousness. I see your future. And it's been in the presence of Christ. I see your future. And it's been face to face with your Savior. I see your future. And it seems like there's going to be a place where there's no more trouble, no more pain, no more heartache, no more suffering, no more sickness. I see your future. There is a day when the desolator will be no more. I see your future. And there will be no more trouble. There will be no more pain. There will be no more persecution. I see your future. And God has a plan and God has a purpose. I see your future. And it's not because I have this mystical insight. It's because I trust God's word. That's my fourth point. That's my fourth point of, of application. The word of God can be trusted. God prophesied that, that, that there was going to be a time, this first seven years, where there was going to be a decree to go rebuild Jerusalem and, and, and the temple. And guess what happened? It was rebuilt. That, 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 there was a prophecy right here in Daniel chapter 9 that an anointed one was going to be come and he was going to be cut off. And guess what happened? He was cut off. He went to the cross and he died. He was eliminated, exterminated. That's what that word means, cut off. It happened. The word, the prophecy went out. The word of God went out that the temple will be destroyed. And guess what happened in AD 70? It happened. So if all those things happen, then we can trust every word in God's holy scripture. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. And so if all of those things were predicted and it happened, then I have to believe that everything that he prophesied would happen in the future will happen. I have to believe that Jesus is going to win in the end. I have to, I have to believe that even Satan is going to hell. <laughs> I have to believe that the Antichrist, he's going to come, but I also have to believe that he's going to be defeated. I have to believe that there will be a day where there will be no more injustice, where righteousness will reign every day, all day. I believe it.
I think this passage finally teaches us of how we ought to live in the gap. Here's where we are. There is this, where we are now, is we've got promise. God has made promises of what will come. And then there's the fulfillment of said promises. We are living between promise and fulfillment. The gap. And in between promise and fulfillment is pain, suffering, heartache, frustration, Doubt, how do we live in the gap? I think Daniel actually shows us throughout what we've studied so far of how to live in the gap, faithfulness. When when Daniel was tempted to compromise his convictions, he didn't. He wouldn't eat at the king's table, Daniel chapter 1. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they, when, when they were, were, were tempted to compromise their convictions by bow down to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, uh, had erected, he, he, they did not bow down. They were faithful to their God. Even with the consequence of the fiery furnace, when Daniel was told, you better not pray, or you go into the den of lions. He said, I'd rather be in the den with the lions than be in trouble with my God. Faithful. And beloved, we are tempted. The world wants us to conform, compromise our convictions. And when we don't compromise, they call us bigots, narrow-minded, But while we're living in the gap, we cannot compromise. We got to be faithful to God and what he has revealed in his word. But I think while we're living in the gap, we ought to be a people who are also holy. While we're living in the gap between promise and fulfillment, faithfulness and holiness. I'm... By the way, when I say holiness, I'm not talking about perfection because that's impossible. We live in a world that's still tainted by sin, that's infected with sin, and we still have our own sin nature. We ain't going to be able to do it. By the way, this is free. I won't charge you for this. The goal of sanctification is never perfection. The goal of sanctification is progress. The goal of sanctification is to make us more and more like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Christ. God wants all his children to look alike. So we're living in the gap, acknowledging that there will be trials and tribulations, but the call for us to be faithful, to be holy. Worship team, you can come back. This is God's word to us. We're now living between the 69th week 
in the 70th week. Until all of God's words are fulfilled, our response ought to be what we sang earlier, to remain confident in the Lord. It is to set our hope on him. That's a word for somebody who is feeling down and in the dumps and struggling with despair and depression. You've got to set your hope. On the Lord. Let's stand together now. Let's respond to this word in song.